So for the last uh, number of weeks, we've been in a series about generosity. And if this is your first time at Axis or you've missed the previous four weeks to hear, you're kind of getting the final building block on a, a, a number of weeks where we've built up to this stage. So in some regards, today's message won't make sense without the previous building blocks. But here's what we've been understanding, that although this, this money conversation is an awkward conversation, just like growing up and having to face the birds and the bees conversation with your parents and them having to face that with you, mind you, it, so too with this conversation, if we're going to grow into the fullness of being a Christ follower, then, then we need to face up to this area of money. Because Jesus says we cannot serve God and money. So we must reconcile this idea of how, what it looks like for us to deal with money as a follower of Jesus. So whilst this conversation is a little awkward and uh, now having spent five weeks in this space, this is my longest ever series in 10 years of pastoral ministry talking about money. It's not something I enjoy, but I recognise it's something that we need to talk about if we are to grow up. And my giving, my generosity is just a reflection of the grace of God at work in my heart. I'm not trying to conjure up somehow from within this spirit of generosity. It's rather me just passing on the goodness of God that I've experienced. It's me growing up to be like my dad. If I worship a God who's generous and I'm related to him, I'm in his royal family, then I'm going to bear family resemblance. I'm going to act like a child in that royal family. I'm going to have a spirit of generosity and bear family resemblance. This is a key statement we've been looking at throughout this series. When I understand I am blessed, I can more readily share. When I understand I'm blessed, I can more readily share. And the opposite is true as well. If I don't think God's blessing is upon my life, I won't share. I won't share. But when I grasp his extravagant goodness towards me, I, I have an open hand. I'm ready to share that with others. So last weekend we looked at a message titled, Relax, You're Already Rich. You're Already Rich. And uh, we said that we need to recognise that by world standards in this country, we're already well and truly rich. We're already made it. And we need to adopt this blessed beyond measure attitude right now because by world standards, us Aussies are very well off. And so we reached the climax of this conversation today by conceding it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. Financially, it's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to grab a mature outlook on our finances. We're not waiting for investment day when the rich uncle in the family passes away and we get this windfall come our way. We're not being duped at this cultural mantra that you can't be content yet. Not yet. You've still got more things to get. No, we are blessed right now. And our generosity starts right now. And so we enter into this this perspective of being adults in this area of money. What do we mean by financial maturity? Well, I'm not sure if this is coming through the foldback, guys, but I've got a bit of a swirl going on up here. Perhaps you just take some heat out of the mic. Um, what do we mean by financial security? We mean that as, as kids, right, 
we, we just we get that first dollar and it kind of burns a hole in our pocket. Have you heard that expression, that, that that money's burning a hole in your pocket? It's like your pocket's on fire, you've got to spend it. That's how kids think. They have something, so they need to spend it. They can't think of anything else but heading to the shops ASAP. You say, John, is there anything wrong with that outlook? Well, not really, only that it's immature if we stop there. So financial maturity is going to look like this, going from a spender to a saver, to a sower. This is the biblical view on our finances, that we, we move from just spending, but we, we, we don't just stop at saving either. We actually embrace this idea that the Bible calls sowing. We're supposed to consider our money to be like a seed. So it's not just about spending it, it's not even just about saving it. The follower of Jesus is thinking about sowing it. Financial maturity in the eyes of the Lord involves stewardship. It takes some time to enter into that headspace though, doesn't it? Because the 15-year-old with their first paycheck, they can't wait to go shopping. This is how we think about money at that age, right? And some of you who are 15 are going, I'm right there. Like, I can't wait to be earning my own money. In these early years of being a wage earner, it's all about the spend. And usually... ASAP. But my 15-year-old self quickly learned that if I wanted to buy a car one day, then today I needed to stop spending all that I got on shoes and cassettes. Yes, cassettes were a thing back then. That's how ancient I am. Some of you need to go back and ask your grandparents, what's a cassette? <laughs> because I didn't say CD, I said cassette, which were before CDs. That's how old I was. And most of my early wages went on shoes and cassettes. And yet the Bible calls that foolish. Proverbs 21.20, fools spend whatever they get. Fools spend whatever they get. That's what a fool does. They operate with their eyes only on the now. They have zero thought about tomorrow. For them, it's all about today. But that's childish and we need to go up. And so we begin this journey towards financial maturity. We begin to plan better. This is a good development and we begin saving. And this is where budget comes into our conversations, right? We begin thinking about a budget and Dave Ramsey says this, a budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. And this is really wise. And Dave Ramsey actually has plenty of wise things to say about our financial management. If he's a name you're unfamiliar with, I encourage you to go and check him out, look him up on YouTube, etc. because he's a real, real whiz in terms of understanding kingdom finance. And particularly when it comes to uh, getting out of debt and, and things of that nature, uh, he, he's, he's got some really, really wise things to say, like getting rid of credit cards and having an emergency fund on hand and etc. Because guess what? Your washing machine will break down one day. Your microwave will break down one day. All those appliances have a use-by date on them and he's saying plan for that. So he has some great things to say, a name that I highly recommend. So we're moving from spending to saving. So now in this middle thing here this middle maturity point and this is where proverbs 6 says go and watch the ants right you ever been watching ants we're supposed to take lessons from the ants it says they labor hard all summer gathering food for the winter 
They're good savers. And this, this, this wisdom of saving is affirmed in Scripture. Save some for the good times to endure the rough times. But the Scriptures have a whole other level here when it comes to financial management and us being mature. And so does secular culture, to be fair. But here's where the Christ follower and the person who doesn't know Jesus, here's where their lives dramatically part ways, like one end of the spectrum to the other. Because these first two traits, notice, unbeliever and believer alike have them in common. We all spend some money. We all endeavour to save some money. But, but an unbeliever has zero interest in sowing into God's kingdom. The, the worldly wisdom would say, you don't sow. Here's what you do. You stockpile. You stockpile. So, so these first two stages are common to believer and unbeliever alike. But here's where the Christ follower and the unbeliever take dramatically different paths. One stockpiles and one begins to sow. Or another word for the same principle in the New Testament is store up treasures in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven. Sow their resources into the kingdom of God. Now someone at this point is going to say, John, I've already got a question. And it's a rip snorter. How would I know whether fear is driving my financial management and I'm stockpiling versus how would I know if I'm just applying wisdom and saving some for the future, right? That's a question that goes on in our minds as we get faced with this reality. Well, what's the difference between saving legitimately because the day will come where I'll need resources and stockpiling out of fear just to feel good about life and feel secure about my future? What's the answer to that? I haven't got one. You have to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart and reveal what's going on there. I can't tell you what to do in that space. You're answerable to God in the long run, not me. If fear is the driving force, then that isn't necessarily good. And stockpiling gets criticised over and over throughout the Bible. But so too in the Bible do we have examples of the wisdom of saving. One such example is Joseph where the Lord directed him in seven good years to save because there was lean years ahead and that was wise. But as we're learning throughout this series, these money matters are matters of the heart. I don't know what's going on in your heart. You don't know what's going on in my heart. But suppose you look at that list on screen and go, spender, saver, sower. Oh, I realise I'm, I'm not sowing at all. My, my head has not entered that headspace at all. What would I do? What would it look like to be a sower? Well, 2 Corinthians 9 has plenty to say on this, and we're going to dive into that today. Now, whether you're joining us online or in the room, I encourage you to the YouVersion app. Remember all the sermon notes uh, in there if you'd like to follow along and make your own notes even. So 2 Corinthians 9 is kind of the pinnacle of New Testament literature on this whole area of money management. And I find it amusing in verse 1 where Paul says, I have no need to write to you, church, about this. And then he writes the most elaborate piece of literature we've got on giving. Imagine if there was a need to write to them about this. So 2 Corinthians 9, reading from verse 1. 
I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help. And I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. So imagine how this giving thing, someone that adopts this generous posture is influential. This is what's happening here. Verse 3, I'm sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready. As I've been telling them that your money is all collected, I don't want to be wrong about my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed. Not to mention your own embarrassment if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all that I'd told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Verse 6. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Verse 10, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you'll be enriched in every way that seed can always be generous. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to it today. So if we're going to adopt a kingdom mindset and move from spender to saver to sower, with the time left this morning, I want to look at some characteristics of what it would mean to be a sower. If I were to be a sower, what would my life look like? And this text has so much wisdom to frame this conversation up. We're going to quickly move through four qualities of a kingdom sower. Firstly, in verse 7, our finances would become heart-dominated. Heart-dominated. You heard right, I said heart now, this has got to be a contentious idea, right? What's my heart got to do with my finance? Bring your heart into your budget conversations. What financial advisor would say that? Let your heart be the guiding light. I don't think so. Use your head. That makes sense. But don't worry about your feelings. Money's not an emotional area. This is about dollars and cents and logic. Switch on your brain. Make calculated decisions that set up your future. Don't worry about how it feels. Worry about results and outcomes. If you go into stockpile, it may feel lousy in a minute. Like if you're scratching towards your first million dollars, then today might not feel wonderful, but know that the day of pleasure will come eventually. So decide success is a bulging bank statement. Don't worry about it, how it feels along the way. Stay goal-orientated. That's the wisdom of the culture around us. And it makes sense if what they say is true, that whoever dies with the most toys wins, yeah? This is the logic of our age. And it, it calls for us to be developing serious analysis about our financial decisions. It's all about the head. It's not at all about the heart. Isn't it incredible then that the Holy Spirit puts this word, 
heart into a discussion about our finance. Well, maybe the version we read is wrong, so let's try another one. NIV, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, NIV's never been any good, has it? Nearly inspired version. So let's go elsewhere to the ESV. Surely that's an accurate one. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you must give as he's decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. All right. We still haven't found what we're looking for. This calls for the authorised version. The King James. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give as he purposes in his heart. Oh no, it's still there even then, this one. Not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Either they all got it wrong or they all got it right. Heart is in every version that you look at. Part and parcel of us going up in financial maturity is letting our heart have a say in our money management. Our hearts play a key role in us being aligned with God in this area. Now, I don't think this means that you leave your brain out of the conversation. It just means that we can't fully enter into a kingdom level of kingdom, sorry, financial maturity without engaging our hearts. Going back to our opening thought about growing up, spender, saver, sower, the spender thinks only of their hand, right? What's in their hand and how they can blow through that? A-S-A-P. The saver has begun engaging their head. Their, their finances is now about logic and calculated decisions and making sensible lifestyle choices for the future. So we've gone from hand to head. Over to sower, they also engage the heart. It matters in the conversation. You say, Jono, this is terrible news for me because I'm a big-hearted person. I'll end up with nothing. Well, don't miss the next part. The mind is still engaged. A kingdom sower makes generosity a lifestyle choice. I want you to notice that word, choice. Giving absolutely involves the heart, but it involves the mind as well. The sower makes considered action. They thought about their giving. They decided in advance to enter into a lifestyle of generosity. It wasn't fluked. It wasn't some coincidence or some chain of events where the windfall falls into the lap. No, they choose it. I think some people misunderstand generosity. You know, it's kind of like this. My brother's a butcher in a nearby suburb and, and last Saturday his cool room broke down. It was a bit of an emergency. He had all of this meat that was going to go to waste if he didn't quickly distribute it. So he turns up in our driveway with a van loaded full of meat and uh, I did all that I could with it. I, I, I stockpiled my fridge, I stockpiled my freezer but there was still hundreds of dollars worth of meat. I thought what do I do? I'll, well, I'll be generous. I'll just start going around. Knocking on doors, random strangers, giving away all of this meat. And well, I felt good at the end of the day. I was so generous. Were you generous or was that just a consequence of an event that happened? 
That's some form of generosity, sure, but it's not really kingdom generosity. What we're introduced to here in 2 Corinthians 9 is a strategic posture, decision-making, giving, because of who a sower is, because of their heart values. They give out of a mindset. I notice here that Paul says, I want you to decide in advance, before I even arrive in your town, how much to give. So this is a decision-based Generous, generous approach to life. And, and I find this fascinating because sometimes we decide, we go to some special meeting where there's a presentation and we think, well, if the speaker's inspiring, if, there's, if the need is great, if the slideshow is A1, you know, then I might enter into generosity and support that cause. But this is not the idea here. This is a decision in advance. Paul says, set this money aside before I even arrive. So this is a, a mental decision to be generous. To be generous. Their giving then is kind of like a slow build over time. They more and more and more as a sower enter into this premeditated generous posture to life. But it's a decision. It's a decision. High pressure at a meeting isn't a tipping point for them to be generous. No, no, no. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to you about people who are reverse tithers. Now, tithing is the principle in Scripture. The first 10% of all that I earn belongs to God. So I'm not giving in giving God my first 10%. I'm just returning because actually it belongs to him. So I'm returning that. But some people are reverse tithers, which means, I find this incredible and inspiring, they live off 10% and give God 90%. Now, that just is a head spinner for me, but exciting at the same time. One such person that has done this is Rick Warren. You might know his name. He's the writer of the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, written some 20 years or so back now, but it, a wildly popular book. Now, Rick's come under a bit of criticism for the way he uses scripture in that book and probably criticism that I think is somewhat fair, but here's what I admire about Rick. Of the millions he's made through that book, and it has been millions, he decided to give it all away. He's become a reverse tither. He, 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 he no longer receives a salary from his church. He lives off 10% of the royalties of the book and it gives away 90. Now I'm not there yet, but I have adopted the challenge of Andy Stanley where he says, become an incremental tither, which means each year work on raising your percentage and see God move. Now I've got a long way to go before getting to 90, but here's what I want you to understand. Tithing is just the training wheels into a life of generosity. Tithing is never the end game. God doesn't need your 10%. It's an opportunity to get the training wheels on and learn how to adopt a generous life that then flows over into all areas of your life. Now, someone new to this conversation is probably wondering, why would I want to give anything away to God? Well, Bonnell says it like this, if one gives themselves first to the Lord, all other giving is easy. It becomes rather natural. It's like, how could I withhold from God? when he's been so incredibly kind and generous to me? Why would I withhold anything from him? And these are the perspectives that move a sower 
into wanting to give more and more from their heart but through decision making that involves the brain and the mind as well. So is also operating in high trust mode, I see in verse 8. So has learned to push through the scary voices of all the what ifs. You know, when you think about generosity, it's like, oh, but what if? I mean, what if I don't have enough in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years? There's all of these what ifs, this anxiety that pops up as we start thinking about being generous. But sowers have entered into this deep trust in God, so therefore they can. And when this gets really scary is when you're on your last handful, you know, thinking about a seed bag, which is the analogy given in 2 Corinthians 9. And the sower reaches in, and I've had these times in my life, and some of you would have had these times, and it feels like, whoo, the bag's getting a bit light. Like I've got a bit under the fingernails, but not much else left in this bag. And it's like that. That's the choice there. Will I sow? Will I continue to give out when it feels like I'm running really light on here? And there's the choice to continue to sow because you're in high trust mode. And when you do that, here's my experience, but here's what the Bible is teaching us. There's this amazing thing that happens where it's like, boom, whew. I'm full again. There's, there's, there's this weight, that this heavenly shot, this divine supply chain that comes down and refills because God can trust that person. They trust God, but God trusts them because they continue to sow out what they've been given. You say, John, that's amazing that God has come to trust them, but how did they ever get to that point where they trusted God? I mean, that much. Where they'd be willing to give away their last handful instead of hoard. I mean, I don't know that I would ever get to that point. Well, here's how you grow. Are you ready? It's really profound. Here's how you grow from here to here. By taking the next step. And then the next part of growth is nobody gets from that side of the room to that side of the room overnight. It's always just taking the next step that God puts in front of you in every area of our faith. We grow by entering the game. We grow by exercise. We grow by practicing. But we grow one step at a time. You say, John, when God gives me a spare bag to practice on, I really look forward to getting into this generosity thing. Like once my bag is overflowing and I'm working on the spare, I can't wait to practice like you're talking about. <laughs> That's not how this works. It's not how this works. It's a trust game. And, and God wants us to take some risks with our generosity, so we learn to trust him more. In week one, we actually did a flyover of this passage, and I spoke that week about how verse... 10 comes after verse 9. You might say, well, that didn't take too much science to work out, did it? No, it didn't. Verse 10 would normally follow verse 9, but it's the principles that I want you to notice here. See, verse 10 talks about God's abundant supply, but verse 9 talks about our generosity. And unfortunately, unfortunately, this is often the way it works. You step out in faith first, and then God comes through with the supply. I wish I could say it didn't work like that, but this is my experience and this is the biblical theology of how much of this works because it's a trust issue. God wants us to trust him. That's what this is all about. I remember 
Uh, I took four months of long service leave after quite a long career in retail and uh, the state manager, and, and I was weighing up whether to go back to the job or not, and the state manager came and met me for lunch because he cared about me so much as a person, so he said. I care about you so much as a person and what's going on in your life and just want you know, to be sure you're coming back. And I said, I don't know, because I was waiting and for circumstances I can explain more later for the sake of time, but I was waiting on to hear whether I'd be accepted in a Bible college or not and I didn't have that acceptance yet. So it was very risky for me to leave this career that I'd been in a long time where I was earning lots of money and say, no, I'm leaving because I'm taking up Bible college. And I didn't even know if I was going to be accepted yet. And they, it got to a pressure point situation where the company said to me, we want to know today if you're coming back or not because, you know, we've got to make other plans if you're not. I said, well, if you want to know today, the answer is no, I'm not coming back. Now, that just felt so traumatic at the time because I'd been 15 years in that job. I had no certainty of what I was stepping into, but I said, I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back. 15 minutes later, the phone rings, says you've been accepted into Bible college. Well, thank you, Lord, but how about that coming 15 minutes earlier so that when I had that conversation with the employer, I didn't have all these heart flutters going on about whether I'm making the right choice or not. But this is so often how God works, not just in the financial area, but in all of our areas of life. He, he's calling us to trust him. Now, that decision wasn't made without counsel. It wasn't just a good idea. I happened one day. Maybe I should quit my job and do this. No, there was counsel and prayer and fasting and all those things underneath that decision. But the will of the Lord became clear to me and my counsellors about this was a direction to take. And so I did. But I did it not knowing how it was all going to work out. And it felt awful. It felt awful. But then 15 minutes later, the relief and the sense of, oh, yes, I'm in step with the Spirit in this decision. I used the word game before, entering into a generosity game. And I'm not meaning to sound flippant in using that word, but it really is a bit like that. It's a game. And God... He uses the word we know, cheerful giver, hilarious giver. It's supposed to be like a fun thing where, where my trust in God is, is, is just growing with each play. And it's an amazing thing. And while I am a, a real player in that game and I'm making a concerted effort and I'm playing a role, I'm working hard, in other words, to earn my way, within it I realise there's a divine coach pulling all the strings behind the play as well. And all that I really am is a player. And ultimately, he's in control and he wants me to trust him and play my part, knowing God is the ultimate supplier. One of the most fascinating stories of trust in our New Testament is this widow that Jesus singles out in Mark 12. You have to look at it in your own time. We've only got time to just clip it right now. But there's this lady that, that gives her money one particular day at church. And it's a weird, weird, weird situation, weird for a few reasons. Weird, first of all, that it says Jesus was watching the collection. So David, the treasurer, he's not here this morning. He was here last night. I've spoken to him about installing a camera right above the box over there so we can observe. I mean, that's weird, isn't it? A bit hard to police in an age of internet um, giving anyway. Uh, no one knows what each other's giving. But, but this is weird. 
Because it says that Jesus was sitting there watching what was going on at the collection. So that's that's first thing weird. Next part that's weird is that he says this. This woman just put in more than anybody else. Now why is that weird? Because the scriptures say she put in an equivalent of a few cents. Now in Australia in the 90s we decided brown coins were worthless and we took them out of circulation. The only thing they do is weigh down our wallets. <laughs> they have no other function really. The ones and two cents. So we took them out in 91. She brings a few brown coins. And you could say, what's the point? I mean, it's hardly going to add much to the overall figure that day. And Jesus says, no, 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 she put in more than anyone. And he justifies why. He says this, everybody else gave out of abundance. But she, this woman gave everything she had. She gave everything she had. You might say, Johnny, you're really starting to lose me at this point because what I'm hearing you say is that even if I were on my last dollar, or in this case, last few cents, God expects me to come along to church and put that in the collection. That's what I'm hearing you say. No. I've searched this text. I can't find the word expect in there. I don't think it was an expectation from Jesus that she would give her final few cents to him. So, so I don't think the word expectation comes into it. I think the word excitement does though. Jesus was excited by what she did. But let me tell you why. Not because it, it gave such a boost to the church finances because quite frankly it didn't. A few cents was not going to be noticed either way. But, but what was going on in here for that lady? And that's why Jesus was so excited about it, because here's someone who has zero love for money. Here's someone who knows who's holding her tomorrow. Here's someone whose full trust is in God, so much so that she can give away her final few cents and not know where the money's coming from for her next meal. I find this incredible. So expectation? No. But excitement, absolutely. Jesus is pumped. He says, look at her, look at her. And I deliberately put a question mark up there because is this woman poor? <laughs> I suggest to you she's very, very rich because she understands the supply chain. She understands where to put her trust in. She's not poor. Someone is going to say, John, you, this uh, message is going from crazy to down like ridiculous like you're just winding it up and up and up where, where God's really expecting me to give everything well not expecting so let's clarify that but let me tell you what I find ridiculous if we go back to stockpiling for a moment you say oh, I don't want to be a kingdom so I, I feel much safer about stockpiling let me tell you why I think that's ridiculous because you better have a big pile to feel good about life. You better have a ginormous pile. I'm talking millions. You say, why? Because there's so many unknown questions about how big a stockpile you need. If that's where your trust and your confidence is about your future in your stockpile, you better make sure it's ginormous. Well, because there's so many unanswerable questions, isn't it? Let's start with this one. How long has this stockpile got to last? Are we talking 10 years? Are we talking 20 years? Are we talking 30 years? Are we talk like, 
How long has this stockpile providing for? Man, that's a pretty critical question to work out if it's big enough. If you're going to place all your eggs in that basket and say, this is where my confidence lies, I hope the stockpile's big. I'm not willing to put my confidence there. A soul operates in high trust mode. We said last week, 1 Timothy 6, be careful not to put your trust in uncertain riches because they're fickle. The assets you have tomorrow may be worthless. Sorry, the assets you have today may be worthless tomorrow. We don't don't know. We don't have any guarantee. The Bible calls these uncertain. This liberated widow got that. Her trust was sky high. It's what sowers get. We're running out of time. I wish we had more because this final point warrants a whole sermon on its own. We pleased him. He said, I'm not going to give you an extra sermon. We've only got time just to name it and read the verses that relate. But a sower experiences holistic growth. We see this in verse 10 and 11. God is the one who provides seed and bread to eat. In the same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you'll be enriched in every way, so you can always be generous. Notice where the blessing comes here. It's not a matter of financial numbers. Sowers grow, period, as people. They flourish because of who they are, because of where their trust is. Generous people flourish. Notice the phrase in verse 10, the generosity is in you. What's that mean? You carry it wherever you go. It's a trademark of a generous person. They carry the blessing of God upon their lives. It goes beyond money. Likewise, verse 11, notice where the enrichment happens in every way. A generous person is enriched. All grace abounds to them in Christ Jesus. This isn't a bank account thing. This is a, this is a whole of life thing as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all these things will be added to you there's this holistic blessing financially yeah but relationally emotionally psychologically blessing in every area of life wow how amazing is that we're done five weeks We've endured five weeks talking about generosity. I employ you out of my own testimony, but more so out of the testimony of the Word of God, to enter into this generosity, to, to open your hands to God and just see what he can do. You know, God can't do much with closed fists, but with open hands, well, you watch and see what happens. Louis Giglio reminds us, God cannot fill a clenched fist only an open hand. Would you stand for prayer? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity over these past weeks to grow and understand what it means to be a kingdom sower. And we just continually ask, Lord, that our trust in you would increase and we would enter this thing called generosity and be amazed at how our walk with you grows how our relationship with you becomes sweeter because of it. So, Lord, deliver us from fear. Deliver us from those what-if questions that just promote anxiety and uncertainty in us. Help our trust be 
in you. And to the end of the day, Lord, it's not ultimately about a figure. It's about a matter of the heart. And so help us in our financial management to show where our trust in, that we are a people who knows where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. And the, and the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so help us be a people that demonstrate our faith in that by the way we live. Holy Spirit, be our helper, be our teacher. Continue to bless us and make us a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.